Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. The big news is that Phoenix 1.7.0, the final, was released. So you've probably already seen this because this is something that kind of blows up on social media and, and just on all the different sites that you might visit about Elixir and Phoenix. But we want to touch on a few different things in here. So along with the release came a blog post. This covers a lot of the different things that are in here. So there's Phoenix 1.7, the built-in Tailwind CSS, the verified routes, and live view streams. Now streams is specifically a live view feature, but it's still relevant to the Phoenix release because the generators were updated to use streams. The final version of Phoenix is using the latest version of LiveView. And when you generate a new resource, like a LiveView resource, your index pages and the modal edit forms and things like that are all reworked to use streams. That's pretty cool. I definitely recommend checking out the blog post as it covers a few things. And, and we want to touch on a few of those here. One of the things is just restating what we've kind of been talking about before that Phoenix is backward compatible is a statement that says, this is a backward compatible release with a few deprecations. Most folks should be able to update just by changing a couple dependencies. I've seen that myself as well. Another resource you'll find in the blog post is a step-by-step -step upgrade guide. This is a gist that's created by Chris McCord. And so it's a public gist. And what I recommend people do is check it out. I've walked through the things and did some minor upgrades on a project I had just to test it all out. But also, because it's a public gist, other people have been sharing their own upgrade tips and deprecation fixes and maybe questions that they'd had. So there's a, a fair bit of discussion over there, too, that can also be a helpful resource. Yeah, I always like those gists because... There's always one thing or another that gets missed. And there's always that discussion down below. It's like, oh, and don't forget to do this and this. And oh, it helped when I did this thing first before I did that thing. And that it helped me at least. And another thing that changed is not necessarily a hard requirement on Elixir 1.14, but a suggestion that if you don't do it, then you're not going to get those nice compiler warnings that come with the verified route. So definitely upgrade to Elixir 1.14 if you're able. Previously, we talked about some of the things that were in the RCs, like the new core components. And in the final version, the way core components works changed in some significant ways. That was a little bit unexpected. And I think that this is just one of those signals about what happens when you jump in a bit early on something like a release candidate. So I had to go through the process of, oh, well, I... I'm still just very fresh on this migration to core components. It even isn't all the way finished of doing the changes I wanted that I want to figure out what's changed from the release candidate to the final version so I can update those things too. We're going to get into some more of those changes because they're significant. We'll get into a few more of those in a minute. But first, I want to talk about how you, if you've already played with the RC version and you want to see what's in the final version and how that's differed, I actually was able to use, David, your tool, elixirstream.dev, the diff generator. And we've got a link to that in the show notes where you can do a diff of the RC to the final one. And if you tried on RC1 and you generated a project and used that as your foundation, then uh, you know it's a great way to see what changed because some of those changes, I was really surprised by them. They're good, but it's like, wow, I just, I didn't expect those. It was already so new. I didn't think it would be even newer. <laughs> right. Quick shout out to a fella that helped find a bug in the generator actually as well in the Phoenix Gen Auth generator 
in the diffing tool that you're using. So if you've looked at it recently, you might want to come back and look one more time. Learned a, a couple small details. I won't get into it, but Phoenix will generate a project with a fuzzy lock, and that that didn't quite work with uh, the way I expected it to <laughs> when trying to get these diffs. Anyway, so we'll have a couple of links to the diffs directly, so you don't have to wait on them being generated. But yeah, that was pretty nice to see the changes in how to use streams. Yeah, another one of those changes that I caught in the core components differences is there was a change to the app HTML heeks, the, the layout, the app layout. There was a new component called a flash group that was added to core components. And really that just cleaned up the markup a lot. Took a lot of that boilerplate stuff and wrapped it into a single function component. So there's a lot of little things like that uh, that are just super handy to, to be able to see in, in the diff. Yeah, I was looking at that one and I appreciated it because it's like, why do I need to know that I need to create an error and an info and then also create a, you're reconnecting because we lost internet and, all, you know, just wrap it up in something. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, if I was to summarize what I noticed from this core components file, it's that, that live views come a long ways. Like I remember when it was in its early days and we were struggling to do some of the most basic stuff and fast forward to this release with the generators, they're styled really nice. The core components, the inputs have mm-hmm. like, straightforward error handling and even last release i felt like it was hard to put like a red border around inputs when there was an error on your change set and that just comes built in now with the with the generators and these core components and i just feel like we've come a long ways it's starting to feel really nice speaking of coming a long way yeah i I still think that there's a journey here to continue on but phoenix and forms just a little bit of context here. So like today there's, there, there can be, it's viewed as a problem, I guess. I, I haven't had a, an issue with it, but it, it can transmit a lot of data over the wire. And it might still too. I think I've, I've seen some folks get into some details on that. But anyway, when you're creating a form with Phoenix, there's, you know, phoenix.html.form, there's a struct there. And you kind of have to like use that form struct even with all those individual fields, right? And when one of those fields change, the whole form is sent back over the the wire. So it's a little bit inefficient there when you're dealing with constantly changing form values, right? Well, in in this release, in the final release, there's another structure that is going to be interesting to see how this evolves. And that's getting down to the form data, the, the, the form input itself. And so there's some new ergonomics around how to construct forms and how to get that to play well with LiveView. And, and by getting it to play well, like the generator stuff, all this stuff's going to make sense to you. We just got to do something a little bit different to take advantage of those features. So the idea now is that if one form value changes, it doesn't have to send the entire form back over the WebSocket wire to update the front end now. So there's some optimizations in place now, but you know, devil's in the details i think still because at least in some of my forms if you change one you know field it kind of informs some of the other fields <laughs> or all of the fields it, it, it kind of just depends on what you're doing but it's interesting i don't know have you guys had a chance to look at that what do you think yeah i got tagged by that one as a little bit of a surprise so i generated a new phoenix 17 project and generated a new live view resource so i could see what the changes were and i was looking at it it's like i see these other functions like to form. And when I'm looking at the form in the template, it's not passing it a change set. I'm, I always see it pass a change set and now it's not. It's passing it a form. One of the sections of the blog 
about this new release is talking about some of the things that you mentioned there, David, which is like that new form field data structure. So that means in our live view, we have to convert the change set. There's helper functions to do this, but convert the change set into a form. And then those form data structures are what we're actually using in the uh, actual markup. That comes back to what's been a discussion for some time about how the Phoenix team wants to do improvements to forms. And now it's kind of like separating the tight linkage that there was. There was that total bond of change set to the HTML form. And now it feels like that's really loosening up. Like there might be other ways to do things now. So that's a bigger change, which I thought was really interesting. And I'm still trying to wrap my head around that one. I wonder if this is breaking it up the API a bit to give room for managing stateful forms. Because, you know, this is still kind of considered stateless, I think. <laughs> anyway, I think that there's going to be some good improvements even beyond this with forms. So, yeah, I'm excited. Well, okay, we've been covering like what things have changed so far, but with every big release like this, now that it's 1.7 final, you kind of wonder what's coming next. What's going to be 1.8? What's next for live view and all that kind of stuff? Like, how can it get better than streaming? <laughs> <laughs> so the only folks that can really answer that, I think, you know, our core team, Phoenix folks, and one of those happens to be Chris McCord. And so there's a nice blog post out there. We'll have a link to it. Uh, he goes into it a bit. Here's a quote, though. With streaming collections as the default, we can move towards more advanced out-of-the-box features for our live CRUD generators in Phoenix Gen Live. For example, we plan to introduce synced UIs out-of-the-box for resources. And the generated Phoenix form features will continue to evolve with the addition of the new two-form interface. End quote. I think that's what a little bit of what I was just talking about. So there's room there to grow for stateful kinds of forms. Yeah. And I, I just thought of that whole idea of synced UIs out of the box. Yeah. What does that mean? What I understand the synced UIs to be is when you start looking at the modals where you might have a form edit that comes up in a modal and you're doing your edit. And then what it does is it's sending a message using OTP message passing to the live view parent and saying, hey, this has updated, this resource has updated. And then it inserts that into the stream in the live view. Mm. Okay. I think that might be some of that, but then I also do wonder if maybe it's a little bit more pub subby kind of stuff too. Like now that we have this message passing thing and we know about updates happening, we can put it in a pub sub. So if you have pub sub set up, then maybe those updates can propagate. I'm not sure exactly where this is going, but what's interesting is just the idea that there's a lot more room where this can go. Cool. Well, if you're interested in learning more about streams, which is one of the new features we were just talking about, Chris McCord wrote a blog post introducing this feature where he explains how it works and kind of shows some code examples. That blog post is going to give you a good example from like a new app. But if you have a current app that's using like temporary assigns and append and prepend and all that jazz, Herman Valesco actually created a short video screencast about this. So we'll have a link to his screencast. That's probably going to be relevant for a lot of folks. So yeah, go check out Herman Valesco's video there. So I saw a blog post come through by Brom Verberg that I thought was worth bringing up. He talks about how we should not trust our clients, even in live view. He suggests, even if you hide a button saying, if this person doesn't have a permission, don't show this button, that's not enough because he gives code examples of how you could even just write into the console a WebSocket message to still push down to the server and issue a delete. And so it's not enough. You need to also, inside of your handle events, 
check for permissions. And just remember, it's a good reminder, this blog post to just not trust your clients. Even LiveView can be susceptible. And by clients, I mean your web browser, (laughs) not your customers. Can't trust your stinking users. Yeah. (laughs) But it was kind of amazing. A little bit of an eye opener, just how easy it's literally a one liner, right? You just, just analyze the traffic that's going through the WebSocket. Just change a couple of like change the id and you just deleted someone else's post (laughs) yeah that's as much as it takes it's readable you know like this isn't like obfuscated like white hat kind of hacker stuff or black hat kind of hacker stuff this is like mm, it's very obvious it wouldn't take much so yeah good reminder thanks Kay. And next up, Phoenix Storybook 0.5.0 was released. So Christian Blavier explained that it's based on the latest Phoenix and LiveView and brings some new features. Just want to highlight a couple of them. A new kind of stories or examples, a new endpoint for writing visual regression tests, generates stories for the new Phoenix core components. So like that's the latest and greatest stuff. Well, we've got a link to the full change log in the show notes, so you can check that out. Another change that was worth mentioning is that the project was renamed. It was previously phx underscore live underscore storybook and it was changed to phoenix underscore storybook. And that just matters because it's referenced in, in the projects that are using it. So like that's a little breaking code change, but not a hard one to fix. It, it looks really good, by the way, like Phoenix storybook, like just using it. It, it looks fantastic. So I'm, I'm excited. All right. Uh, next up, Elixir in Action. You may have heard of that book. If you're at all in the Elixir space, you've probably heard of Elixir in Action by Sasha Yurik. It is probably the best book for learning Elixir. It certainly is my favorite, and I highly recommend it. Likewise. So there is a first edition. There is a second edition out. And now there's a third edition that's coming available in Manning's early. It's currently in Manning's early access program. Currently, there is a 45% off coupon shared via a, a tweet of theirs. And you've only got a couple of days to snag it. It expires on March 9th. 45% off is kind of a big chunk there. So if you're at all thinking that you're going to get this book, you should get it. (laughs) Go ahead and get it. 45% (laughs) off. We've included this coupon code in the show notes for those that are listening and need to copy and paste that code. It's MLYORIC3. And another quick LiveView native progress update. Ryan Cartarella shared that they are on the home stretch. As of this recording, they've passed the 80% mark, but he's careful to set some expectations, saying that what they're doing now is to support Swift UI views, and next they'll be working on some Swift UI modifiers and animations. But overall, awesome progress. I'm excited to see what they come up with. Indeed, yes. And that's all for the news. Elixir and Phoenix are incredible. They make it possible to quickly build highly resilient and reliable systems capable of operating at incredible scale. Fly.io is a great place to host Elixir apps. You can deploy your app to multiple regions around the world with a private network linking them all together so your app can cluster and globally do some incredible Phoenix magic. Give your users a more responsive UI while writing less code and moving the app closer to your users without needing an ops team. Check out fly.io for your next Elixir app. Today, we're being joined by our special guest, Andrea Leopardi. Andrea, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. All right. Well, I am glad you could join us because we've been talking about you on the news for some time and some of the proto hackers challenges, the the network challenges that you were doing with Elixir, which is really cool. Then you're also, you've done some improvements to the debug, the IEX tool, and what that lets us do is like a quality of life improvement. I want to learn more about that. 
how that works, how you can actually pull something like that off. But also you're a core team member on Elixir. And I'd love to get some insight as to what you've been doing with Elixir and, and your your story and journey there. But before we get into all that, I'd love to just hear a little bit more about you. Like, where do you live and what kind of work are you doing? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm uh, Andrea and I live in uh, central Italy, which is where I was born as well. It's about an hour east of Rome. And I currently am unemployed and I'm working full time on the book that I'm going to write for Prague Prague, which is network programming in Erlang and Elixir. So I'm taking like a sabbatical between jobs to focus 100% on that. Yeah, I've been in the core team for about seven years now. I've been doing Elixir for close to 10 now. And I've done a lot of public speaking and training. Uh, and I've done a lot of uh, backend systems uh, in general and architecture and all sorts of stuff, computers. So I remember one time in the past, you'd mentioned that you had, were working at Apple on doing some live view stuff. And I was just like, whoa, there's there's live view stuff? Like, because Apple is generally very tight-lipped about anything that's going on internally. And it's just neat to hear that there was any elixir there at all. Can you share anything about what was going on there? A little bit, yeah. So we were, I was working in this part of Apple called Environmental Supply Chain Innovation as an organization within Apple. And I was in a small software team working on internal tools. Let's just put it that way that I think, I think that's all, I, I better say just that. And, <laughs> but we were using Elixir, like they were not really advertising Elixir there, but uh, we were using, it, it's public information. So, and we were using Elixir for building that sort of stuff. So, yeah. There is some Elixir at Apple, indeed. You'd mentioned that you were a core team member for like seven or eight years. And I'm just curious about what a core team member does. Like, are you doing PR reviews? Are you doing mailing list discussions? Like, because I know the mailing list, people make proposals for language changes and there's all that kind of stuff. It's just a lot of, there's a lot of administrative work too that has to be done. So what kind of stuff is it that you've been doing? I would say that initially it was a lot more actual work on Elixir code, on the Elixir code base itself. But with time, Elixir has become a lot more mature, I think. So right now, the work that we actually do on the code base is, is a lot less, right? Like we, we do a, a lot less stuff and the community is so big that everybody wants to join in, right? So we're, we're generally happy to have contributions from other people that are not in the core team, right? So a lot of what I do, yes, it's definitely like, I would say 95% in Elixir itself, 95% is administrative work. So I do, I do a lot of, uh, we, we try, I mean, we try to do a lot of like PR reviews and issue, issue triaging and uh, community work as much as possible. So, um, you know, being on the mailing list, being on Elixir forum when we can, I generally consider also like speaking at conferences or like, you know, being on a podcast. That's also, I, I always see it as like part of being in the, in, in the core team and kind of like participating in the community as much as possible. As for me, like the core team is pretty small and I think everybody has like slightly different roles. So if you take Eric, for example, he's does a lot of work in hacks, right? Which is not proper Elixir core, but like it's still a core part of the Elixir ecosystem, right? So I still like, you know, see, see that as also like part of his being a member of the Elixir team. And my kind of area, I guess, is that I do a lot of, uh, I, I co-maintain or co-maintain a lot of libraries. Like, uh, you know, you have Radix, you have the bunch of Broadway stuff, you have a bunch of Nimble underscore stuff, and uh, you have like stream data, you know, there's a the get text, like, you know, there's a bunch of stuff that I help maintain. And I think that's definitely where most of my programming time goes, right? Like fixing issues and 
mint and uh, like in the Cassandra driver. Like there's just a lot of stuff that like it doesn't require a lot of work. Like each thing there doesn't require a lot of work, but they pile up. Right. So like you, you're going to you're not going to like look at the protobuf uh, like, you know, a repository for like two months and in two months, like a few things come up. And so like you just do cycles over and over again and you're generally pretty busy with just doing that, you know. That would be a challenge just to be jumping around between code bases that you don't spend a lot of time in just because kind of having to re-dive in. It's like, oh, yeah, how does this all work? How is this all structured? It is terrible. I can say that I that that's why I try to keep the cycles very long. So if you open an issue in one of my repositories, unless it's a trivial issue or it's a repository that I've been working on recently, I'll just be terrible and ignore it for for a very long time until I actually <laughs> go and decide. Okay, now like this month, I'm gonna focus on the Cassandra driver, and so like then I actually have to like you know reload everything in my head, and like then I'm able to actually like fix a bunch of issues maybe you know and then close a bunch of issues and like review PRs and everything yeah it's hard to like have all this stuff in your hand so i i mean i can't do it for sure <laughs> that makes sense just kind of batching up a lot of wait wait for things to pile up until there's a, a large enough chunk of work that makes sense to do it exactly and, until you're sufficiently stressed out enough to just start doing stuff yeah <laughs> yeah yeah guilt-driven development for sure <laughs> <laughs> well i wanted to talk about this other feature that you've added recently it was in uh, january 24th you updated Elixir's debug DBG little feature to print out Boolean expression results. So one of the things I just wanted to understand is why did you choose to do this? Because this sounds like something that it was probably not someone saying, oh, this is really important. This needs to be done. Where did this come from? Was is this your own idea? <laughs> no, it was it was just uh, essentially coming and saying, well, this is really important. We absolutely have to do this. <laughs> and I, 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 I was just the one doing it. But no, it was just this idea. And it came from him, like, you know, trying to debug some big uh, Boolean uh, expression he was working on. It was like, oh, it would be really nice if we had, you know, Boolean expressions broken down, you know, in, the, in, in, in different sub expressions in DBG. And I was like, yeah, I can do I can do that. So that was just a, no, I'm just the arm, you know. Usually, <laughs> I'm, the, I'm just the ha the hand. He's the hand <laughs> for this. If someone were to try this, what kind of a statement would this help you debug or to to get insight into? So I went into doing this more hopeful than this turned out to actually make me feel, <laughs> because I wanted to like you know it would be nice like you have a complex boolean expression with like you know five or six sub expressions and for example since all of this stuff is like short circuiting like for example you don't know like what is the thing that was truthy and they, that got you like for example you're doing an, like a sequence of ors and you have one thing that's like truthy and you don't know which one it is right like it could be like a number it could be a string and you don't know where it comes from so like breaking it down into parts that that's where it would help you right but it turns out that that's not easy to do at all because of a few things. One of them is that Elixir operators are overridable. So we don't really, like when you see pipe to pipe, like you don't really know that that's an or, like it's in kernel it is, you know, but you cannot import that and define your own. And then like you're, you're just like lost, right? So uh, what we ended up having to do is actually only, the only certainty we have is that these operators are left associative or write associative, I would never know. I would have to read it, but they're associative one direction, right? So we can, we can, for example, say, okay, the left evaluates to this, but then the whole right evaluates to this, right? Like we can't really go deeper. We can't do like a lot of smart stuff because of the, you know, the fact that these are overridable. So it ended up, it ended up being like a very, very minor quality of life improvement. 
still like I think like the the cool thing with DBG is that like there are so many of these that are waiting to happen. I think that they will pile up over the years. Like right now, I you know I can print fancy pipes. When you have like a bunch of pipes, you can print them in a fancy way with with the value for each pipe, for example, for each expression in the pipe, and those are really cool. You know, in the future, I, I hope that it will just like keep getting better. You know, and, and like at, at like different use cases, you know, will come up for sure. For those folks that have overridden the double pipe, you know, the or expression, aren't they already uh, looking for pain and generally masochists? Like, <laughs> why do we have to give them tools? <laughs> They're obviously building their own. <laughs> That's a fair point. No, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, th this is a good point where like you you wanna you wanna try to get like eighty eight the eighty twenty rule. You know, like cover eighty percent of the people with twenty percent of the effort and like leave the twenty percent of the like. You know, it's something like that, but... Uh, no, no, no. The, the, these folks are the 1% and even less than that, I think. <laughs> yeah, like 80 to 20 is like, yeah, a, the numbers are skewed there in this case. But yeah, but uh, like, it, like, yeah, it, it was not trivial because like, for example, another example I can give is that the, like, you can't print the, the left and right sides of an or because maybe the, the right side shouldn't be evaluated if the left is true, right? So you can say, for example, you can have something, something pipe pipe raise something right like if this is nil raise something and then you can't just print oh the left print the left returns nil the right raise exception like you can't do that right so you have to also be you know or it could be like a destructive operation or something so yeah it's a, it's a minor quality of life improvement at this point i think but still well dbg has been a huge yeah quality of life improvement in general and this boolean expression evaluator bit was also really cool because it, it kind of brings it up to the level of like debugging i can do for pattern matching on just functions but elixir maybe erling too already kind of prints out like the cases that it tried and what the value you know what values didn't match so it, this is kind of the same kind of thing just for boolean expressions which is great so i loved it and it's fantastic, in my opinion, that like uh, the the thing that you mentioned with the with function close errors, that it's transparent. Like you don't have to actually do anything. Like it, we just updated DBG, and you you pass the same expression you were passing before, and now just print it with like more information about it. That's what that's what I think will be the coolest thing about dbg is that we can keep piling up this like oh you have you know you want to you, you dbg a map maybe we i don't know order the keys to show them or i don't know like we tell you how much or we tell you how much space uh, a term that you that you debug uh, takes or how much or like how long it takes to evaluate whatever we have a lot of things we can improve for free without people actually having to go and change anything we just call dbg and we can like print more information because it's ex uh, expected to be a debug feature so it's expected to not be in production so we are kind of like allowed to do crazy stuff in there you know well i would love to jump into this next section where we talk about all the work you did on the network programming which leads into the book that you're also talking about First, just want to make people aware, I got a link to it in the show notes. There's a playlist of all the videos that you created as part of this Proto Hackers challenges. So there are nine videos where it covers eight days, where day zero is like setting up and making sure you're, you're all ready to go for the different challenges. If someone has not followed any of this and they're, they're not really sure what this is, can you just give like a high level introduction to what is the Proto Hackers challenges? Where does this come from? Yeah, absolutely. So I can I can tell you a little bit of backstory because uh, I think that helps you piece things together. And so I was I was doing Advent of Code. Like I think most people at this point are familiar with Advent of Code. 
if you're not, it's like a little website that every December it posts from December 1st to December 25th, it posts like a, a, a challenge a day, a puzzle to solve every day. And you have like, it gives you an input, you have to paste in the output and like it has to match and you get stars and everything. So it's a bunch of challenges. And I was doing that in Rust to get uh, like better at Rust because, uh, you know, just to learn this year. So, and and when I finished this, I was like, okay, no, I, you know, I can do like, advent of code to type puzzles, which are very specific kind of puzzles in Rust now, but I still don't know how to do anything practical like for the real world, right? <laughs> so I tweeted like, the, the, what, what do people do? You know, what, what, what's the next thing that I can do with Rust to learn a little bit better? And why one of my Raz, which is a former coworker of mine actually, sent me this link about uh, to protohackers and protohackers is essentially advent of code for network challenges so for for network stuff so it's a website where you go and they have like a bunch of different challenges and they provide you with like you provide them with an ip and a port where you're hosting the solution to the challenge and then they they wrote like this person wrote wrote a like you know a little program that goes and checks your solution by actually hitting that IP and and port and doing all sorts of sorts of checks to see if you got the solution right. So it's a uh, more complex than advent of code generally, or at least the setup is more complex. Like it requires you to deploy something. There's like you know protocols involved and and stuff like that. But it was super super fun and. Uh, I started doing it in Rust and then, you know, it, it was fun to learn, but I realized like that made me appreciate so much how nice it is to do this sort of stuff in Elixir and Erlang and on the beam, because it's kind of built for that, right? Like all the message passing kind of maps, like one-to-one -one with all this, like, uh, you know, asynchronous network stuff and like it's, it's, uh, the binary handling, obviously it's amazing. So it's really like a, a fantastic feat. And I... The kind of like my the gears in my head started like you know turning more and more and i was like oh i mean no there are no resources on this and i've never done like a youtube video in my life you know like that like i i, I don't know how like it's, it's a new medium for me so i was like maybe i should give this a try and so i i, I did this an experiment this is an experiment where i like just did this on on as as if video series instead of like writing a series of blog posts which i've done a bunch of times or like you know whatever that eventually like kind of like snowballed into the book because it was like actually you know yeah these videos are cool and they're fun but like i think there is actually you know a space for a proper resource on on network programming on the beam because there's there's a lot of documentation for sure but there's not a lot of i think of packaged nice resources where you can learn the patterns as well not just the you know the libraries and 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 the functions and the things that you have to use, but actually, you know, learn the designs, design patterns and like the best practices and stuff like that. I'm glad that you did a, a video. You'll have to tell us if that's, if that was like really difficult, because that was your first like YouTube vi video series. And, you know, that's a whole different realm of like style and communication and all that. But also like the content itself, it's, it's hard to update, you know? Not like I go back to my blog posts and update them, I don't, but it's easier to do that than re-record the whole video, right? I'm happy that you're also going to be doing, you know, a book of written content. I feel like that's going to be a little bit easier to search for and recommend to folks. It has the potential to be more evergreen than a YouTube video, generally. That said, the networking stuff in Elixir is based, you know, most, most of that I, I'm presuming is actually just exposing Erlang stuff. That stuff has been around for decades <laughs> so it's not like that's going to change that much you mentioned this idea that elixir and the beam are a really good fit for it and when i saw that you were doing these proto hacker challenges i was like yeah that's why erlang was created was to be a like in a network router and routing this type of network traffic it's like it was 
purpose built for that? Can you, can you share any like insight or, or perspective on that? Yeah. I mean, like you, you can tell that's all I can. I, I was like, I came to look to, to lecture and the beam, like, you know, decades after that was, uh, you know, being worked on and Erlang was born and all of that. So, but you can tell like that, like the beam is like, so like, it's just, it's such a good fit. Like you can tell that they were thinking about this stuff when they designed the beam itself. That's what I'm, that's what I was trying to say, you know, like you, you, from the fact, like the, the, all the primitives, you know, like uh, processes and messages between process and linking and, you know, all this sort of like relationship and isolation between processes, all this stuff just maps one-to-one with how you usually want, for example, a, a server, like a TCP server, imagine, right? like to look like, like you want the connections to be isolated. You know, the fact that you have garbage collection, uh, you know, per connection, that's just like amazing, you know, all this sort of stuff and the binary handling that's just like they were working on different protocols, but you know, the, the internet is made of protocols, you know, like networks are made of protocols. So like that's, you know, maybe they were working on different protocols, but they built the tools in the, into the beam to actually, you know, work with any kind of like binary protocols, right? Like you just, it's a very good fit. And the last thing is the asynchronous aspect to all this stuff is amazing. Like when you, for example, you pick up Rust, you kind of have to, unless you want to like deal with actual, you know, with, with threads and like doing a lot of uh, lower level, kind of closer to the, to the operating system level stuff yourself, then you have to pick up something like Tokyo. I don't know how that's pronounced, but like the, the asynchronous um, kind of library for, for Rust, right? You know, the fact that you have to reach for a library makes you like, I, I understand why they did it. And it makes perfect sense for Rust because you want to keep a small core that's like, you know, this and that. But it makes you appreciate the fact that in, in, in Erlang and Elixir, this is just the lowest possible level of design for the language. Like it's baked into just the guts of the beam, right? It's not even something that's like, you know, in, in like it's not OTP where they're like in gen service and stuff. It's like a middle layer. Like, you know, it's not the lowest layer. The, the message passing and the links and the monitors and uh, the processes, the, the, those are like the guts of the beam, right? Like it's just uh, the lowest level feature. So I think it's just like a fantastic fit. And after all, like, I mean, Erlang, is, as you said, Erlang has been used for decades now to build stuff on networks and the the new age of the beam when when elixir came out and phoenix started to gain traction it's just another network stuff at the end of the day right like it's just phoenix is pretty high up in the abstraction ladder there so you don't really see like the the bytes going in and out but that's just what's happening at the end of the day you know like so i think it's a really great fit i think another side benefit of the video was i think it's interesting and fun to see how other people work so you have Andrea here, a Cord contributor for seven years. How does he work? How does he code in Elixir? He's been doing it a lot longer than me. It was interesting to see, you know, the way you approach things and how you work in Elixir. That is, that is uh, like ninety five percent why I try. I, I decided to try this thing because I now I've been work, I've been a software developer for like a, uh, enough years to to consider myself like sort of senior at this point, you know. So uh, and I. I, but I still have so much to learn, you know, and like for me, having like being able to see someone like, you know, 10 years senior, like more senior than me would be like a fantastic thing. Right. So I figured like maybe people that are starting out, like would be interested to see how I work um, instead, you know, and uh, it definitely like it's a very, very like good boost to your imposter syndrome because i'm like <laughs> you know people are going to know that I just like I, you know, make up stuff all the time. I don't know what I'm doing, you know. But, uh, you know, I, I decided to, what's the worst that can happen? What I think is great about that 
it's like a, a form of mentorship, right? They're being mentored. It's almost like a pair programming. It's like, hey, I'm just kind of, this is what I'm thinking about. This is how I'm going to go about it. It's humanizing. From the beginner mindset, I don't have to get to that point where I know everything, right? I have all the answers. It's like, I'm still figuring it out. And the people who are senior and working on the language, they're still just figuring things out as they go. And I think that is encouraging, actually, for people to be able to see. There's a word for this imposter syndrome stuff, by the way. It's called a Dunning, the, the, the Dunning-Kruger effect. <laughs> <laughs> the short version is that those that are experts in their field perceive themselves to be less of an expert. It also works on the other side of the spectrum, which is folks that are just complete beginners have more perceived confidence in their abilities. <laughs> it's it's usually swung that way. Like, yeah, you get folks that just like have no idea what they're talking about, but they just give off this air of, of confidence that like, <laughs> <laughs> but on the other side, which obviously where you are, cause you're, you're a core member team. You've, you're doing, you're doing things with rust. You've got your hands in a lot of other areas, got your, obviously a subject matter expert. You, your perceived ability has, is a little bit lower. It uh, sounds like <laughs> than what it really is. So that's, that's good news though. <laughs> so coming back to the book, I was curious if you could tell how the video series played into the being a book, like which came first and did Prague Prague reach out to you or did you say, hey, I'm having a lot of fun with this and you reached out to them? Like, where did that come from? The latter. So I reached out to Prague Prague and the book came from the video series actually because so when I started recording the video series, I realized I have so much to say about this stuff, you know, because I've, I'm not an, like, I'm not a network expert to be clear, like far from it. So I actually, you know, I had to buy my like university textbook, like computer networking and, and now in order to write my book about computer networks, I like, I don't know a lot of stuff, you know, but I've done enough at this point with, especially like revolving around, you know, TCP mostly like, and like doing database drivers and like doing uh, servers and stuff like that. And I've done enough to especially appreciate OTP and the Beam and Erlang and Elixir, right? Rather than the network parts, you know? So I feel like that's where I have more to offer. It's not like all the networking layers, but it's just about how do I architect good performant, reliable uh, applications, network applications in Elixir and Erlang, you know, what are the patterns and what are the stuff? And when I was doing the videos, I realized, you know, I have so much to say, but I don't think this is the format to say all of that, you know, like this is a format to like, you know, solve these challenges and like, it works well for that. I'm, I'm a book learner. So like, for me, I would want the, there to be a book about this stuff, you know, I like to learn, I like to learn in books. So like, I, you know, I, that translates and I figured that there's no resources, almost no resources. If you write network programming, I think I tried to write network programming in Elixir on Google and like the second result was a blog post of mine about doing some like, you know, like writing a connection, like a TCP connection with, with GenStateM or something like that. And like, it's like, it's very far from like, you know, a good, like, it's not a good resource. I mean, it's like a tiny little window into this. It's not like a good, like complete resource, you know? So I figured that would be, that was like my market research essentially. And I was like, okay, there's, there's definitely a space for this, if nothing, you know, and learning some Erlang has some, for example, has some, there's a chapter about UDP and and uh, TCP, but it's not, it's like, it's not a book about networking, right? So I think there's a lot of opportunity to write a resource in this space. And considering how good of a fit Erlang and Elixir are in this space, I think it's just like a good resource to have. So that's that's where the book came from. 
it's going to be really hard to do, but I want to try to bring people that are not in the Elixir and Erlang communities into those communities to do network stuff, right? Because like, oh, now we're bringing people in from from the web, yeah, absolutely. For embedded devices, we're bringing people in. Now for machine learning, we're bringing people in. And, you know, like, I think that like, we can definitely bring people in for, for networking and stuff because like, it works so well, you know, like, it's just like such a good fit. I think so. I think there's a lot of opportunity here. You, you mentioned Googleability, the search engine optimization of these kinds of resources, right? You were looking for your own, you know, <laughs> your, your own help and your own blog post showed up. <laughs> That's reasonable. That's what a lot of folks are going to be doing. And books are going to be good things, right? Good, good resources, but they are by nature offline kind of resources, unless there's a, a an online course, you know, that kind of like pairs with that. I don't know if you're planning to do that, but, you know, Hexdocs has typically a good resource for finding those kinds of that, that, that kind of help on things that are going on. But I don't know, I still think that there is a something there that's lacking for our community for Elixir and Erlang's community, like, Hexdocs is really good, really, 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 really good. Like there's, there's no question to that. But, you know, searching for that kind of stuff, finding those kinds of like laid out guides, the module documentation, I think is like, top class kind of stuff in our community. But those guides, you they have to be intentional about that, right? Phoenix is intentional about that. So they've got a lot of guides that are written there. A lot of good like module documentation can include like short little guides and stuff like that. But one area that I'm focused on is on Ecto. And it sounds like you're focused on, you know, network programming for, for Elixir stuff. Like there's all these domains that just need a lot more content around it. I'm really excited that you're getting into it and going to start building out some of that content because I think that's a key to like the community growth. If they can find the answer, they're much more likely to like stick with that group, right? If they can't find the answer, well, they're going to consider other communities, other languages, other ecosystems to go figure out how to get their, you know, their idea done. One of the things I see that comes up a lot in the Elixir community is that question of what's Elixir good for? You know, like, what is it best at? You know, people come in and, at, you know, they're new to the community. They're just kind of early stage exploring. Is this something I even want to spend time in? And what I think is funny is, you know, obviously there's Phoenix, which is web, which is a lot of it. But then there's nerves, like you mentioned. And I really, I love the idea of being able to say, are you talking about building anything that's networked? You know, because you have clustering, but then you have the network protocol, you know, support. So, powerfully built in there. And then a book there would be awesome to have to say, yeah, if you're building anything networked, <laughs> which is a lot of things, I hate to see people exclude Elixir as a good fit for their problem, because maybe they, they're only seeing it as Phoenix. And well, I'm not trying to build a web server, right? I'm not trying to build a web application. It's great at lots of stuff. And I'm really glad to see that you're spending some time trying to make it more approachable just to people in the networking space. So speaking of uh, writing some more content and more more guides, I saw a recent tweet of yours talking about the Fly.io distributed systems challenges. T tell me a little bit more about, about this. What's going on there? Okay. Yes. I read a tweet that came out that they, were, that they published this uh, sort of the same concept, you know, where you have challenges like you have in Advent of Code and like you have in Protohackers. And they're doing that for distributed systems. So distributed system problems. So like network splits and, you know, like different like cluster of nodes and stuff like that. And I think that would be fun to solve in Elixir. I thought like I just like kind of like uh, tested the water to see if people would be interested. And I think for these sort of challenges, for example, reading blog posts is not as fun as like watching someone 
you know, walk you through the through the solution because I don't want to be, you know, I try to write a blog post when I I want folks to really be like be able to understand something maybe more complex at their own pace, you know, like I, I want like you know you want you want to give them a resource they can like read and reread and for for example, you know, or like give code snippets that they can copy and paste and stuff like that. And instead for this kind of stuff, I think like from the proto hackers experience at least, it, it seems like people enjoy the video format. So I just tested the water waters. And I think it would be I think it would be fun. I also have that sort of attitude where I'm very arrogant about what I can do. Like I have no idea if I can <laughs> do this, but like no better way to just like, you know, you, you say in public that you're gonna do it and now you have to do it. Like you have to learn <laughs> enough to do it, I guess. So like yeah, I have, uh, this is like, it's it's a good same thing sometimes. It's a bad thing other times, but this, hopefully this time is going to be good. So I'm going to, I'm going to, yeah, it seems like people were pretty interested. So I'm, I'm, I'm excited to actually, yeah, I think I, I think I will do this. Uh, I have some stuff to wrap up. So it's, I, I have no idea about the timeline. And I mean, as you mentioned, like, you, you know, recording videos is a whole different beast, like takes so long and like, you have to, you know, make your background pretty all the prep work ahead of time oh my god and like make the background pretty and you have to start to care about okay what microphone i'm using and like and you can see if you if you watch the proto hackers uh videos that i did you can see like me progressing in every video i figure something out like in the first videos like a terrible webcam bad audio you know like <laughs> me just like in the dark room you know and like with a, with a small font size and the next video is the same but this font size is bigger you know and the next video is the same but i turn the light on my face or something you know and like you can see me figuring things out and the editing gets better and so on you know and and so it's like it takes a lot of time so i don't know when i will do this but uh yeah it seems like another thing where like we can showcase i mean elixir i don't know if elixir is good at distributed systems i, I guess like yeah, man, many languages are but it's a distributed system by definition they have to be on a network so yeah, uh, I was curious how how you might wrap this into some of your book work as well. You know, I, I figured this could be a chapter. I, I don't, maybe, or maybe not. Maybe it's not so involved with the actual data that comes over the wire. This is more about architecture, I, I presume. I presume as well. I don't. I don't actually know. So I'm gonna like. I'm not gonna say anything to not to like yeah, <laughs> compromise myself because I don't know. But I presume. I presume. Yeah, it would be more about like you know how to deal with like you know the data structures involved, for example, in dealing with like network splits and stuff like that, um, and and like you know electing uh, leaders in, in in groups of clusters, like that sort of stuff. You know, more like distributed systems. But but they are a network, and so I think you know still it's it's a pretty like fun thing to solve. I think. What I think is interesting is we talk about how Elixir and Erlang are able to do distributed computing, right? And like that is supposedly one of the things that you can do, which is true, like clustering and everything is built in. But I'm not aware of any kind of tools that make it easy to simulate, reliably simulate, oh, I want to do a net split. And how do I handle those problems? And all the, the tooling to simulate low latency or high latency or dropped packets, like 30% of my packets start dropping, you know, just like a suite of something that makes it so it's easier to build and test those things in a, like a reliable way. And I think that's maybe part of what comes out of this as part of the challenges. Is that fair? I mean, yeah, I, was, I, I, agree, I agree. Like this is my, this is definitely like a thing that I've always struggled with, which is that when you come in networking in general, I'm not even sure it's like about distributed systems, but it's about networking in general. It's really hard to simulate the network because like we write these 
programs that operate on the net, like you, for example, you write a database driver, right? And what you do, you like you write a Redis client, and you spin up Redis locally to test it, right? And locally, just like not ever like a dropped packet, not ever time, never timeout. Like it just everything goes well and it's fast as hell. You know, like you just like don't have any issues. And then you deploy this, and you know, database somewhere else, and like you you have all sorts of issues. You know, like you start to you have providers that decided like you know if your connection stay up for more than a minute, then you know that's enough, and they shut it down. So you like you have continuously shutting down connections, or you have you know packets that are dropped, or you have timeouts and you have all sorts of stuff and that's really hard to it's hard to simulate and so locally right it's hard to simulate that for for testing purposes and because it's hard to simulate people don't do it and by people i mean also me in the past for example like you just like it's much easier to not do it and you know to like write code without bugs that's that's what it's easier to do you know you just write the code correctly and but obviously i mean that's 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 impossible. You know, it's just like you need to test it. So like you, you kind of like you go at it was like, oh, I'm just going to write the correct code. But like, of course, you're not going to write the correct code, you know, so like it's interesting that there is so little support for that sort of stuff. Yes, I, I agree. There is a little like you can do a lot for like disconnections, especially like you can manually go and close sockets. And that's pretty easy to do. As it turns out, you have to do it. I mean, I'm going to talk about that in the book, hopefully. So where, where I'm going to say like, you know, like testing patterns for for network stuff. But for example, simulating low uh, simulating high latency or like unreliable networks that's really really hard to do because it's like there's an element of randomness into it right like closing a socket is just okay a socket is open or it's closed but like uh, dropping 25 percent of the packets it's like it goes into probability territory so it's like harder to simulate but it happens in the real world and so it's like it's worth testing out and just one example i can give i'm i'm talking a lot but one example i can give was proto hackers where there was a, a couple of challenges with UD, uh, uh, using UDP instead of TCP, right? And for listeners that might not know, like TCP is a is a protocol where the protocol itself deals with packet ordering and dropped packets. So when you send a packet, then you know it's gonna come at the other end, right? Unless the connection drops. So and it's there, the packets are gonna come and they're gonna come in order, right? And UDP is nothing like that. In UDP, you have no guarantees. So you send the packet, you have no idea if it's gonna come, if it's gonna come in order, if it's gonna be duplicated, you have no ideas, right? And I was, you know, working on the solution to this problem locally, and locally everything worked perfectly. And then I deployed it, and I actually had problems with proto hackers testing my solution, you know, where I hosted my solution, because I don't know, like ProtoHackers hosted somewhere in Europe and my solution was hosted somewhere else in Europe. And like maybe enough packets were being dropped that this was actually, ProtoHackers was, was considering my solution not valid. And even ProtoHackers had to like bake into their tester program some stuff to say like, oh, you know, a bunch of stuff can be dropped with UDP and all that. So like that actually happens in, in the real world. That's that just to say that like, this is a real thing where like not being able to test this properly makes it really hard to write good network software, you know? So I'm surprised as, as just as much as you, but I like my brain gears are turning. So I like, I have some ideas. Maybe we can actually try to improve the situation. Who knows? Yeah, I, I have a, a, a similar story, but not so low level, but that, that yeah, you, you, you connect to a WebSocket, you're, expect, you're expecting to get messages pushed over the wire. And then and then some at some point you just you just stop receiving messages, but you don't get any errors. <laughs> so like the connection is open but you're just not getting any messages i had to write a dead man switch is what i called it a, a switch to like just check like have i gotten anything in the past like five minutes or something and if not reconnect and that and that gets the messages flowing again i don't i don't know the issue there but 
Yeah, you wouldn't expect that in in production. And I don't even know how you would test that either, end to end, at least. So I can test the dead man switch. I can test that, you know, logically I'm doing things with the messages, but <laughs> getting getting that tested all together was I don't I don't know. <laughs> well, it sounds like the book is gonna be an interesting project. Do you have any idea? Is this like a, a year-long kind of thing or just for the networking one that you're working on? Is this your first book? <laughs> No, it's not my first book. So I wrote and I co-wrote another book, uh, the Testing Elixir, with a friend of mine, Jeffrey Matthias. And the experience that that book gave me is that we sent the proposal to Prague and we were like, I'm gonna, this is going to take six months. In six months, it's going to be on the shelves. you know." And uh, it took six months plus three years. <laughs> so it, it didn't go as planned at all. This time I'm writing the book alone, so I don't know if that's going to take me actually longer or, or you know, like more time or less time. I have no idea. And I just, I'm very resistant to committing to saying anything about dates because, yeah, because I'm like, I just like, I'm, I'm bad, apparently very bad at predicting the, you know, the time it's going to take me to write it. But yeah, it's going to be, I mean, I would be surprised if it's less than a year until it's, it's out. Cause there's also like a lot, I mean, to be fair, there's a lot of processing that goes into writing a book that is not just writing the content because the content then needs to be reviewed by multiple, you know, layers of people. You know, you have like the technical reviewers, you have the like public tech review, you have the, like the actual proper like writing editor that looks at the book and then you have a whole thing with like obviously where they have to actually you know get the the publishing going you know and all of that and you know the, the drawing the cover like there's a there's a lot that goes into writing the book so it's not all in my hands so you know I, I, but and, and it's it just stuff that takes like a bunch of time you know and uh, i would be surprised if yeah if it's less than a year but i think a year is probably like a good uh like it's it's my it's my hope, you know, like to get the content written in I don't know a few months and then get the book out in about a year. Maybe that would be, I would be I would be happy with that. Just put it that way. <laughs> I know there's some other stuff that you're going to be doing coming up soon. Where can people find you and what are you doing coming up? Sure. So I usually announce all my stuff on Twitter at my my username, which is what you hide, which I'm sure is going to be in the link in the, the, the show descriptions. Generally try to announce everything there. I, I'm also on Mastodon with the same username. So you can find me there as well. And I try to announce everything there as well. Coming up, so I'm doing a keynote Saturday in Mexico City with Francesco from Erlang Solutions. So we're going to do a, going to do a keynote there. So if you're going to be at Code B in Mexico, I'm going to see you there. Then I am uh, doing a training about concurrent data processing in Elixir at ElixirConf in Lisbon in April. So I'm super, super excited about that. And uh, I realized only after doing submitting the training and getting everything approved and getting that on the conference website that, that this is exactly the name of the book, Concurrent Data Processing in Elixir from Prague Prague, which I own. And I was like, that sounds like a great title for a training without the thinking that that's also the title title for the book. I found out after that that's the title for the book as well. So yeah, I'm sorry for that, but that's going to be an exciting training. I mean, we're going to do like a, just a chance stage and the flow and Broadway and all done with, uh, with live books. So it's going to be a very interactive training. So if you're going to be in Lisbon, that, that would be cool to do. No, nothing else planned. Writing the book is just like, yeah. I've been burned by the time it took me to write the last one. So now I'm just like heads down, <laughs> head down writing the book. 
And you'd mentioned that you were on a sabbatical and in between jobs. Are you looking for a, a job opportunity right now? Should someone reach out to you? As we say in this industry, I'm on the job market. But yeah, I, I've been doing a bunch of interviews in the meantime. Yeah, so I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to find a job at some point. Yes, like that's, uh, that's for sure. <laughs> so yeah, if you want, if you want to reach out, uh, I'd be happy to. Awesome. And we'll have links to where people can get in touch with you in the show notes. Well, Andrea, thank you for joining us. I really appreciate talking with you. And I was shocked that we hadn't had you on earlier. It's just an oversight somehow, but I was glad to be able to talk with you about your contributions to the Elixir community, which have been long and meaningful in, as a core contributor, as a presenter, as a trainer, as an author. So I really appreciate all the work that you do. Thank you so much. I'm very, very happy that I was able to join. And uh, yeah, was, thank you for having me. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir. Thank you.